Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of the Roman's Empire podcast. As you could probably hear, my voice is gone for two reasons. One, yelling all five times Gonzalo Higuain was completely offsides. Number two, Marcus Rojo's tackle on Willian. And number three, Game of Thrones. <laughs> so... Without further ado, I don't want to get too into Game of Thrones because I know a lot of people on Twitter already told me to fuck off because of um, spoilers and whatnot. But um, I, I accidentally tweeted something yesterday, so I'm not going to bring it up. But anyways, Andres is here. So, Andres, how you doing, bud? Doing all right. Um, had a pretty decent weekend despite that we only got a point away. You know, got to watch Avengers Endgame. Uh, you know, got caught the match with some friends. And, of course... Got to watch that fantastic episode of Game of Thrones uh, where we got to witness the end of the long night. But um, unlike the end of the long night in Westeros, it seems like the top four race is still pretty much a very long night because nobody wants that last spot, huh? Oh, my God. Tell me about it. I feel like the top four race is Dothraki running straight into winter. (laughs) Yeah. Like like nobody wants to win. That sounds about right for you, Game of Thrones viewers. You understand what that looked like, but we're and, we're we're gonna we're gonna throw in a lot of Game of Thrones puns and references throughout not, this episode. No joke, but because of your you know losing your voice and whatnot, I guess I'll take over here and we'll start with the Chelsea Man United game. We ended up drawing one one at Old Trafford. The starting eleven were Keppa, David right back. Rudiger and Luis at center back pairing. Alonso on the left, kind of a surprise. Our midfield three comprised of Jorginho at Regista, Conte as the right center mid, and Kovacic at left center mid, another surprise. And a front three of Hazard on the left wing, Willian on the right wing, and Iguain up top. So let's start by talking just about the team selection. I briefly mentioned Alonso and Kovacic as the big, big surprises. And well, with the Cho injury, of course, we thought we'd get one of Willian and Pedro. And I actually preferred Willian, so I wasn't too mad about that. And the final one, our informed striker started on the bench. Giroud, for some reason, not getting the nod here with Iguain starting. So I'll let you kind of give me your opinions first of this lineup, Zach. Um, To be completely honest, I wasn't too mad about Alonso starting out on the left, um, mainly because I don't see Ashley Young as, a th- as an attacking threat on the right-hand side of their defense. And I thought that uh, you know, putting Alonso out there was actually kind of a smart move because it'll allow us to pin their right side of defense back, which we did after right about the half an hour mark. Man United came out of the gates firing, by the way. Um, but I, the one I was most um, disappointed about was seeing Kovacic start in this game. Um, I still struggle to figure out what exactly we gain by having him on the field. I mean, of course... He is he is active defensively and he could dribble himself out of trouble, but he doesn't seem to be a positive passer nor a negative passer. And I think that's where I'm at my crossroads with him. It's Kovacic is very neutral. He kind of gives you a six out of ten every game, and uh, he doesn't give you anything going forward. And he's not elite defensively. Like he's decent just because he has great work rate, but not seeing Loftus Cheek start this game is pretty disappointing to me, regardless of the fact. We have a Thursday game against Eintracht Frankfurt, which we'll get to in part two. But, you know, I, that Kovacic one was just 
shocking to me. And I know a lot of Chelsea fans were up in arms about Ali Giroud. And Andres, I'm curious to see what you think about this. But mm-hmm. I said last week that I wanted to see Iguain because I felt like this match would be the real test for him. You know, we saw him play against Burnley, and he was he is actually probably one of our uh, one of better our better performers. players. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was. And I really thought he was kind of slipping into some sort of form, considering that. This is a guy that scored 30 goals in a league season in Italy, which is pretty difficult to do. Um, but he was just god-awful. Yeah, he, he was not very good. I mean, for me, the the one that stood out was the Kovacic one, obviously, because RLC had been in great form. But he did have that slight injury. So I can forgive sorry for that one. You know, you rest RLC. You mentioned we're still very much in the Europa League. And to be fair, I don't think Sarri was going to switch his 11 based on everybody else's results. He had he had no way to predict that Tottenham and Arsenal were both going to lose as well. So, And in the matter that they did. So I, I understand why he might have saved RLC this time around. You know, a very physical game could, could potentially sideline him for even longer. And then I actually thought it was clever to play Alonso based on how Man United approached the game. They were playing that 4-4-2 diamond. And they were just gifting us the the outside spaces where our left backs can run and overlap. And knowing that Hazard is going to stick to his area, I actually just thought that it was smart because Alonso could drift into the box kind of unattended. And it actually worked and he scored because so much of the focus is on Hazard that people forget about the goal threat that is Marcos Alonso when he gets into the box. So you mentioned it. Ashley Young's not coming forward because he's just recently in just awful form and the fact that they were playing with very wide forwards. So when we had the ball, Alonso seemed to be an extra player in the box when we needed him to be and He got to finish the, the equalizer. So that one worked well, but you, you alluded to Iguain's bad game. And I agree with you that he was just piss poor. Shit. So bad. And earlier this season, I was complaining about how Morata was by far the worst player I had seen, and, and his performances in terms of being offside were awful. Yet, here we have Iguain doing the exact same thing and being offside five times this game. Five times. And not just random five times. In key moments where we had counterattacks with numbers, great opportunities, it it was baffling. I've never seen something like that. What did you think about those offsides, man? I, I really don't know what to say. I mean, th- this is what pisses me off about Iguain is that he, he used to be world class, right? And nobody could dispute that. I mean, his goal scoring record pretty much speaks for itself at the club level. But the, the offside, how offsides he was and the positions he was getting into had nothing to do with the deterioration of athletic ability or sprint speed or mobility. But it's between the ears, and, and and I think it's something mental. And when you have a striker that hasn't been up to par or up to the standards that he played the rest of his career at for the last two or three years, I think you're treading in – you're starting to move into very dangerous territory. I think that's usually what makes or breaks a player, especially at 31 years old. Right. For me, it's 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 a mentality thing. You know, he has to be thinking one step ahead. There is a little bit of laziness um, involved in that as well. Like, bro, take a step or two back and time your runs. 
you know, you know what positions you're going to get the ball into. And I remember there was one specific instance where Hazard had the ball on the left, drove right up the middle of midfield. Um, he skipped two or three challenges. And it was one of those situations where if we had Ali Giroud, he would have dropped in and just done one of those little wall passes with Hazard where he drops into the midfield, creates right. that space in between the two center backs, and then just kind of serves the ball up on a platter for him. And instead, Iguain peeled off the back shoulder of Bailly and tried to run in behind and got flagged off sides. And listen, even if he did time that run, you're peeling off the back shoulder of one of the most athletic players on the pitch, let alone center back. Bailly is a freak of nature. That's what I was going to allude to. It seemed that he was trying to get a foot or two ahead of these players as if he was going to be able to beat them on a sprint and take the ball to goal. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it. The guy is 30-something years old, and speed has never been his key trait. So for me, it just didn't make sense why he continued that strategy when he knows more than anyone that he works best when operating in a crowded box. Mm -hmm. Instead, he was trying to be the hero, and that really bugged me. And the other thing that bugged me is actually what Sari was talking about, Iguain after the match. He actually said that for a striker, it's difficult to u- to get used to the Premier League for every striker. And he used Suarez as a reference. He said that in the first season, Suarez only scored three goals, then 16, then 24. But it's difficult to adapt to the Premier League. And he even said that next season, Iguain would score a lot. And I just want to let give you my train of thought in this because this quote right here just pissed me off so he's using Suarez as his example Suarez came to this Premier League as a promising talent at this point Suarez had just lit the the Netherlands League he was playing for Ajax at this point you can't compare the two leagues so the fact that he grew into his role makes sense at this point you alluded to to alluded earlier that Iguain has played in top clubs and top leagues he was a striker for Real Madrid and scored plenty of goals there. He broke records at Napoli. He scored decently at Juve. He is mm-hmm. actually, since he started his career at Madrid, in the top five active players in uh, in the list of club goals behind Zlatan, Messi, Ronaldo, and Cavani. So he's an elite company. Yeah. So if you're telling me that an elite finisher needs three seasons to make his mark when he's already supposed to be all wise and has seen it all in terms of the defenses – He's facing, I call bullshit because I'll give you another person who joined the Premier League in the in the in the January window who's been lighting it up since he got here, and that's Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. Mm-hmm. So I call bullshit on this, and I am tired of excuses because Sari only seems to find excuses for his choice players that he brought into this club. I think I think that's one of the problems I have with Sari. Um, you know, we, we talked about it on this podcast, um, especially in the beginning of the season when we had that nice little run before the new year, where we mentioned how much we appreciate Sari's uh, honesty in press conferences. But the, it seems like the one time Sari's never really honest is when he should be blaming himself. He always seems to deflect these questions and 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 and, and find these bullshit excuses. Um, similar, I mean, I mean, like I know we're gonna get to the next, but like similar to his motivational ability and saying like I can't motivate these players. Well, yes, Antonio Conte and Mourinho had very similar problems, but they also had those problems after successes, which is sort of a trend in professional sports in general. There is that they call it in America the championship hangover. Like you hang a banner 
and you know it, it takes you a while to kick your team back into gear, and sometimes they never do at all. So I guess for Mourinho and Conte, there's a there's that little uh, uh, benefit of the doubt, right? And besides the fact that they're both world class managers, I mean whichever way you look at it, you go to Maurizio Sarri. Now you're still in the top four race. You are still in the Europa League. You're you're the favorites to win Europa League. You took your team to a Capital One Cup final. If you're look if you're looking at this season, I mean we have gotten better record wise, points wise, right? I mean that's right. that's factual. But I just feel like he just keeps digging himself these holes by not admitting his mistakes. He talked about not being able to motivate the players, but time and time again he'd keep playing players like Alonso, Ross Barkley. William and Pedro over Kalamunson Adoy. He kept playing Hazard at the false nine. I mean, he was basically asking for it all season long. And if he has trouble motivating the players, what would Mourinho or Conte do? They might throw in a little youth player in every now and then. They might throw someone in that's on the periphery, give them their chance. And Sari just doesn't seem to do that for me. That's one way he's digging himself a hole. Another way is this quote. That he talks about Luis Suarez and especially Gonzalo Higuain. Sorry, should be blaming nobody but himself. This was his boy. He vouched for him. He convinced the club that they need to get Higuain by whatever means necessary, even if that meant a two-year loan deal with his ridiculous wage bill and his ridiculous transfer fee if we decided to purchase him afterwards. But he completely struck out. It seems for me that Higuain is not the type of player that suits this system. And I know he's found success in the past. And how he found it, I'm not too sure. I mean, we know Italy generally has a slower style of play. Premier League's very much um, a box-to-box, if you will, right? It's faster-paced. It's it's more high-tempo. There's more energy, more effort that goes into it. Whereas Italy is definitely, I would say, a little bit more tactical. And, and you definitely build from the back in places like Italy. Come to the Premier League. He's not quick enough. He's not strong enough. From what I've seen, he's not positive enough. This guy throws his arms up every single time he gets whistled off sides. He throws his arms up every time his teammates don't connect passes. You have to make things happen as a number nine. That's simple. The matches where Diego Costa would bitch and moan, which was basically every single match, he still fought, right? He still scrapped with center backs. He did the intangibles. He'd knock people over. He'd win headers. He'd win knockdowns. He'd hold up play. He'd link up passes. Something that Ali Giroud specializes in. Ali Giroud specializes in everything but scoring goals. And the fact that he's not getting picked over Higuain, it's kind of crazy to me. Like I said before, I know that I said I want Higuain to play this Man United game because it was a test. And he completely failed it. So from here on out, we have the two Eintracht Frankfurt games. And the two Premier League games. We have four guaranteed matches before the season's over. Ali Giroud has to start every single one of them. I don't care about squad rotation. I don't care about any of that. Giroud has not been playing consistently all season. He's been sitting on the bench. And he should be relatively fresh. I'm not taking excuses anymore. I'm just I'm just kind of done with it, to be yeah. completely honest. No, and you said it. We At this point, we know we have a striker problem. But the thing is, Giroud gets other people involved. Mm-hmm. As where Iguain's frustrations just make him more of an individual player, and he just doesn't have the physical attributes to do that sort of thing. You borderline see, cancerous. <laughs> yeah, you see players like 
you know, the Mbappes, uh, the Callum Hudson, these guys that have lightning pace where they think, okay, if I just beat this man, I am through. And you get it. You know, they're trying to use their skills to just make something happen. But Higuain isn't using his best skills to do that. If he just lays the ball off and lets somebody do the running for him, gets himself in a good position in the box, that's where we want him to be. But instead, he thinks he's a 20-year-old lightning bolt and tries to outrun a decently athletic pair of center backs. I just didn't get it. I cried for Giroud in this game. And unfortunately, I think that injuries were the reason he didn't get to be subbed on. But I want to actually get into Sarri's tactics and actually just motivational ability. And I actually want to start with the motivation side of things because we are, you said it, there's two league games after this. Two. We are in the middle of the closest and most bizarre top four race I've ever seen. (laughs) And a win against a rival like Man United essentially would have sealed the deal here. Because all Mm -hmm. we would have had to do is draw both of the remainder games and and we're through. Like mathematically, I believe that would have put us through. Yep. Yet it still took our team 30 minutes to get into this game. You said it. United came out hot. Lukaku looked like Everton Lukaku back when they just when he shook Cahill to the ground and just manhandled our back line. Mm-hmm. So United came to play initially because I do think that they ended up kind of giving up after the 1-1. But initially they came to play. They scored first. They were just taking us on. It looked like this game was going to get ugly after that first goal. And that doesn't – that has to come down to, to sorry. I, I don't know how a team – who is competing, who, who has so much on the line and is, has been given chance after chance after chance to essentially have some redemption, yet here we were conceding to United and kind of just taking it, mm-hmm. just taking it. And do you, do you, sorry to cut you off, but do you get the sense that part of the reason why Sorry can't seem to get performances out of this team when he needs to be connected to his personality type? Because Chelsea have been known to have very intense managers, both tactically and emotionally. Mm -hmm. And managers like Mourinho, managers like Conte in the past, they were able to get a reaction just by their energy and by their intensity on the sideline. And for me, I don't really get that with Sarri. Yeah, for for me, and I've been thinking about this as to why Sarri doesn't either – we know he's a tactician by heart. Like that is all he thinks he needs to do. But why he doesn't see the human side of things as an important factor into a game. And I think it may come down to the fact that Sarri didn't play at this level. And and this sounds probably just kind of just biased maybe because I played and I've been, you know, you and I both played growing up. So we know when you, even if it's high school level or club level, a final Mm -hmm. is a final in your eyes when you're a teenager. And you know how much that means and you're trying to do whatever it takes to hype yourself up, listen to music, whatever it is. But to me, sorry, just he's a he's a whiteboard manager and he doesn't understand that things are said on the pitch and people check social media and they watch what pundits say. Like, that's one thing that Mourinho and Conte and Ancelotti understood, like they knew what these players have been going through, what their psyche was like, and they knew exactly what to say in public for their players to see. They knew exactly what to say in the locker room for their players to react and you said mm-hmm. it. Maybe it's moving one player back on the bench to show him that he's not just going to waltz into a starting spot. And Sarge just doesn't have this. Sarge just thinks, okay, if I keep hammering my 
usual tactics on, eventually it'll click. This isn't a math exercise where you eventually know that two plus two is four. There is so much more going on here, and I think that's why Sarri is just so bad at this. He is boring these players out of their mind by with all these tactics and the and the whiteboards instead of just being like, look, that's Man United you're playing. They want to kick your ass and send you back to the Europa League. Are you going to let them do that? Do you know who you play for? That's the kind of thing I could never see Sarri doing. And people are going to be like, oh, he's not a Chelsea man. I, I, I don't think it's that. I think it's simply the fact that he was never under the lights, 90 minutes to play for a giant piece of silverware and then metal around his neck. Yeah. And I, I do think there is an aspect of that. Um, but there is a little bit of, and, and I guess this does tie in with tactics. It seems like the whole team has just been devoid of confidence since January. And I feel like part of the reason for that is because Sari's not willing to adapt and willing to to change the game based on the situation at hand. You got managers like Pep Guardiola, like Jurgen Klopp, that change things on the fly. You know, if a team goes down to 10 men, they bring on an extra striker. They change the system. If they need a goal, they'll throw on another wing. You know, like they adapt to certain situations. If they need to sit back and defend – They'll take out an attacker and throw on a defensive midfield player. They have these these in-game uh, uh, in-game management, right? For for lack of a better word, I actually think it's mm-hmm. the best word to describe it. But sorry, doesn't do that. And after we scored against them, after uh, Alonso, by the way, great finish by Alonso, and the the angle that we got on on TV didn't really do it justice. If, if, if you guys all. go to YouTube and you YouTube like a fan video from the stands, you'll see how tight that angle was. And Alonzo actually did really well to squeeze that in. But you get the sense that these players don't necessarily have the confidence in Sari. Yes, they might like his system. Yes, they might like his philosophy. Who wouldn't want to ping the ball around for 90 minutes and hold possession? I mean, that's it's comfortable. Right. But that's in theory, exactly it sounds what it great. Is. Yeah, exactly. This is but, this is the same argument the communists had. I mean, yeah, yeah with just, socialism, right? <laughs> yeah, obviously, like, oh, for the better of everyone, I get it. But ninety minutes of a of a boring. If you're not scoring goals when with all this ball, players are gonna start getting frustrated, and that's our goal came from that frustration. Rudiger shot it from forty yards out. Rudiger was like, "Fuck this! I'm gonna take a shot from thirty-five yards out." And by the way, this is complete something completely separate. David De Gea, and, and this ties in with Sari. David De Gea is in the worst form of his life right now. I mean, he's just having an awful time. He's not a shitty keeper. He's actually one of the best in the world, top three for sure. Yep. He's just kind of going through a rough patch right now. And anything that gets that's on frame is basically going to be parried right into the middle of the penalty area for someone to rebound or is just going to go straight through his hands. And the fact that we did not take any other shots outside the 18-yard box after Rudiger took his is just absolutely beyond me. And this is management. You go to the dressing room at halftime. You tell the guys, all right, we haven't been playing well. We got our goal. It's 1-1. They're deflated. Any chance you pick your head up and see that you can get a shot off, I want you to put the ball on frame. Let's keep David De Gea under pressure. And he didn't do that. And that's in-game management. It's identifying weaknesses. Another example, United came out absolutely flying. There's aliens living on Mars right now 
that knew that Solskjaer was going to put out a diamond 442 and he was going to have his strikers <laughs> running into the channels while the other one peels in centrally. And Sari still didn't adapt to it. And his 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 post-match presser kind of pissed me off because he's like, "Oh, well, we have to have a little bit more desire to win the ball early in the matches. You're outmanned 4v3 and you have one defensive midfielder who's playing in an advanced position." How are you supposed to win that midfield battle? Like, I don't understand. It's a simple math problem. Like, four is more than three. So the fact that he was surprised that they seemed to jump on us from the early going is insane to me. And that Diamond 442 is the same exact system that the top six teams have been using to kill us this season. Literally this our, kill us. Our, this is our, our... first point in the th- <laughs> against the top six team. Away, away. Uh, we, away, away, yeah. Going into this game, I believe we had been outscored against the top six on away matches 13 to 1. Just to put it into perspective. And that's, they, not, that's not including if you throw Bournemouth and Wolverhampton in there. <laughs> right. So so you put that into perspective that five, four other matches put us at 13 to 1. But no, we're, we're doing something right, apparently. Oh, it's, man. I just feel like the players have to kind of have to have to kind of sit there in the system, this cookie cutter system, and I've used that term before, but it I mean it is what it is. It's cookie cutter. There's it's the same patterns, it's the same it's the same run of play. We're making the same mistakes. We're not adapting tactically. United was completely deflated and they were there for the taking. And yep. On in any other season, picking up one point at Old Trafford is a decent result. It's not the greatest thing. It's not the worst thing. In this case, it was so incredibly frustrating because United was awful after they conceded that goal. And if you're if you want to put them under more pressure, and I made this argument last week, throw on another striker. These <laughs> fucking like for like substitutions. William gets injured. There's no reason to play Pedro. Throw on Giroud. Now you have Giroud and Iguain playing next to each other, and that opens up the space in between the lines for Hazard to operate, which is where he's best. And and that's another thing. He's not getting the most out of Hazard. In a match like this, the team needs to be built around Hazard. And if you're going to build a team around him, that means playing Loftus-Cheek in midfield. I would have started Emerson, but I understand the reasoning for Alonso. That's fine. Got to play Giroud up top. You, you, you absolutely have to, and you have to play Pedro on the opposite wing. We were too there was, it was too crowded in the middle. Whenever we, we got possession, we yeah. couldn't link up passes. There was absolutely no width, and every single time our fullbacks got the ball in that first half, it wouldn't even beat the first man. Right. In terms of in terms of letting so their diamond formation was very compact and instead of us taking advantage of that width, I felt like William got dragged straight into that midfield. And he was so central. It was I think William was lined up if you draw vertical lines up the pitch, I think William was lined up with Rudiger more so than Aspie because Conte was making runs to the outside because William was just so tucked in that they were in the same space. And that leaves us exposed in the middle when we yeah, turn the ball the counter over. Attack. The counterattack exactly. looked great because Conte is 30 miles away from the ball. 
And there you have Pogba just strolling towards our box. Our, it, I mean, that, that connection uh, for the goal was on that side. It was on, on Willian's side. So, yeah, it, it's just it's frustrating that the tactics, we budged to their tactics when we could have easily, I guess, um, what's the word I'm looking for here, where you kind of take advantage of their weakness? But, yeah. Yeah, take you, you know what I mean. I mean. Yeah, yeah, just take I mean, advantage of their weakness. It is what but, it is. And the sad part for me is that Sari is supposed to be this manager that achieved so much in Italy and has done so much. And yeah, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, on the other hand, got relegated when he was the coach of Cardiff, went to Malmo, which is not prestigious by any stretch, right? It's bang average. And then he gets a job at United. And somehow still out coaches Sari in a match like this. Yeah. Like when you really think about it, he got the tactics absolutely spot on. I mean, you watch those first 30 minutes all over again, and that's arguably the best 30 minutes United have played under Solskjaer. Period. And that's not an exaggeration. Like they were, they were absolutely rinsing us in that first half. Yes, they ran out of gas, but tactically, it's embarrassing. That Sari got outclassed on the day tactically by a manager that has no European pedigree whatsoever as a manager. Yeah, a manager whose win career percentage is 53%. But and enough about the tactics. Let's talk about the real MVP of this match. And as much as I hate to have to bring a referee into the middle of this because just the way I feel, it's Martin Atkinson. Shocker. We have another referee having the worst officiating game of the campaign when Chelsea's playing. And my God, was he bad. He was letting Ander Herrera do what Ander Herrera does best, which is take out Chelsea players left and right. I, I don't even know how to just – how to fathom the fact that Ander Herrera was able to finish this game. Then in the second half, we have Marcos Rojo in the span of 10 seconds go for two blatant slide tackles. One of them – studs up into Williams' ankle like it it was clear as day and any he other was, league that's a straight red oh my god easily and and again it's just oh, var can't come soon enough you see that in the bundesliga it's a two second under the hood and that player is gone if they miss mm -hmm. it he was right there and still didn't call it or he called it eventually but he, after like a play on because the ball made it all the way to the other side of the pitch and it was just a yellow I I don't know what to say about this. I've actually just baffled, baffled, because on the other end, I, I'm pretty sure that Kovacic got a yellow on pulling on, on a player slightly, and it was his second foul of the game or something like that. So it's just what, what, what do we do without these refs? What is the – what are the guidelines to these things? Because – there what are is the expectations? so much there is so much uh, percent error I feel like as mm -hmm. to here's what the typical call is but there's a 37% error here so it might be you know 20 20 refs call it yes 22 refs call it no it I just don't understand how something like a studs up tackle gets to this point I mean the thing that's just most damning for me is particularly on the Marcus Rojo challenge on Willian. Martin Atkinson was maybe seven or eight yards away from it, right in front of his face. How do you not see where the contact is initiated from seven or eight yards out? Yet, 
you could give Kovacic a yellow card for pulling a man back and you're 25 yards behind the play full sprint trying to trying to catch up to get a better angle like it's there's no consistency there's no uh cohesiveness between the linesmen as well and we've seen this all season long and it becomes a problem because it impacts the outcome of matches you know Marcus Rojo gets sent off United doesn't have another fit center back on the pitch you know, now they got to drop Matic back in center back, throw on someone that didn't even get the warm up in midfield, and now they have holes all over the pitch that Chelsea could exploit. But no, he completely misses it. And the second to final whistle blew, he runs out of Old Trafford, hops on a plane straight to Oakland to call one of the worst NBA games I've ever seen <laughs> in terms of officiating. It, it may, I mean, it's just. I know it's bad to talk about the refs, and I know you could pull the argument out that, yes, Chelsea shouldn't have played poorly enough to the point where we're blaming the refs and blah, blah, blah. There is, of course, there's always logic to that, mm -hmm. and I, I completely agree. But it gets to a point where the where the officiating is has just gotten so ridiculous. I mean, it's a farce. <laughs> like, the, they're not officials, you know? They're... they're 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 walking targets because the second they walk off the pitch, everybody is dissecting exactly what they did wrong. And if they didn't do that much wrong, we wouldn't argue. Like right. we haven't had a problem with officiating in the Europa League. I don't think that's a coincidence. <laughs> and I've mentioned this before. You go to other countries, the the officiating. Yes, of course, it's an issue in any sport. Human error. It's human error. But this is like. This is just ridiculous. It's like these guys haven't even taken the taken the proper accreditations or classes or whatever steps they have to do to become a ref. It's kind of like they just like you know when I mean we were both recently graduated from college. It's kind of like you know as a college student you type in every question to your online test in Google and Quizlet pops up and that's exactly how you get all your answers. And I feel like that is exactly what these guys do for the refereeing courses to get their badges because. <laughs> There is no – it's impossible to see what they're supposed to be looking for, and it's impossible to see what is a yellow card or a red card. And I even right. think the announcer said it during the match is like is like that should that should be in like like an orange card even. Like <laughs> They said something about that. He made up a purple yeah. card and then yeah. easy sports commentary. But yeah, it, <laughs> another yeah. case of this was Matic threw an elbow straight at Aspilicueta's face. And yes, people are going to say, well, Matic is like a foot taller than Aspie and whatnot. Just a week ago, or, or maybe it was 10 days ago, Troy Deeney did that against uh, Torreira at, at the Arsenal match, and he got a red. Maitland Niles got sent off for, for <laughs> elbow or something. Red card. Same mm -hmm. argument. Torreira is a tiny player. Deeney's a giant. Same argument. It's not red even like card. it's not even like Dave is like 5'6 or 5'7. Dave is 5'10. He was able yeah. to play center back. So, like, he's not a big guy, but he's also not a small guy. There is no reason why your elbow needs to be six feet in the air. Uh, Matis' argument that he was trying to put his hand to, to Aspie's chest. But it was an unnatural like movement. Said, <laughs> excuse me. But um, enough about the referee who, spoiler alert, is one of the many-faced gods. Like You're, uh, you're allergic to the referees, huh? Uh, that's it, man. But yeah, like you alluded to, he also was the referee at the Rockets Warriors game, and I'm still living about game one. But again, to quote now Avengers, the Avengers movie, the top four race is still 
on, and we're in the end game now. We yeah. we got we got two more games. Somehow Arsenal is going back to Arsene Wenger's special of choking, and they have lost. <laughs> just I mean, all of us have lost, but the fact that they've gone from being in complete hold of third place to now sitting on the outside looking in at fifth is beyond comical. Spurs, they're still in third place. I'm not quite sure how much more. Uh, I don't think they'll drop out of the points. top four. Yeah. I don't either. They're still two points ahead of Chelsea, but they have major injuries. Winks actually just posted on his Twitter page that he is out for the rest of the season, has begun rehab. There's just no way he can fight this. Oh, what this is he going to do without world class Harry Winks? <laughs> right. Kane still out. On top of all of this, they are in the Champions League semifinal. They, they're still in the most important level of, of competition they've ever been in, at least in our lifetime. So they, their mind is elsewhere on top of the fact that they're just extremely short on options. And United, they're three points back, still in shambles. I, I honestly, in my predictions, they were in sixth. I think they're staying there. But we have now been tipped to be the favorite for the fourth place. And I just don't think – I think a, a, a draw and a victory can seal the deal for us. Mm-hmm. What, what do you, where do you think we stand in this top four race, Zach? Um, excuse me. My voice is cracking like a little girl now, but it's Chelsea slash Game of Thrones slash Mark and Atkinson's fault. Um, to be completely honest, it's it kind of surprised me when after this result – um, everyone was tipping us to be the favorites to go into the top four, regardless of Arsenal or Man United's form or situation. The fact of the matter is our on-field product is just not good enough right now. Um, so it's hard to be confident about anything, um, especially in regards to the Premier League. And I'm looking at our schedule. Watford is never easy, especially for your club like Chelsea. You know, it, it is a London derby. We don't have the greatest goal-scoring record against them. We leak a lot of goals against them as well. They have the players and the personnel that could hurt us, like De La Feu, um, Will Hughes is bit on fire. Decore is a rock, um, you know. And then and then we got Leicester away, and in the final game of the season, and you know, just ask Arsenal. Leicester never rolls over for anybody. They're always a very tough team. So our schedule is not necessarily the easiest. United plays two relegated teams in Cardiff, and I believe they play one of Fulham or Huddersfield, I believe. I could be wrong, but both the teams they play basically have nothing to play for. And then, uh, you know, you, you, you got Arsenal, who I believe they play Burnley on the final match day. And I think that's the key there. The only reason why anybody should have any confidence about this top four race is because Arsenal plays Burnley on the final day of the season. And Burnley held their own against Man City if it wasn't for Sergio Aguero. And, you know, like, let's not mis- let's not kid ourselves. They're, they could get results. I'm not going to say they're a good football team, but they could get results. Um, but if I had to give it a percentage, Andres, I'm probably going to go 50-50 right now. Because who knows what the hell is going to happen. We have a lot yeah. of fixture pile up as well. We only have three healthy wingers. Um, and I got to be honest with you, we didn't really talk about it much um, in the review for the Man United match. But N'Golo Kante did not look 100% yeah. either. And it's clear that he's, you know, his back is still bothering him. So I'm going to go 
For for me, I think I'm gonna go closer to eighty percent. And I know a couple of weeks back I was in a position where I said we weren't even gonna be top mm-hmm. forward, that we were actually had to sneak in with Europa League. But people are now thinking, Oh, Eden Hazard said that we have to play Champions League, Chelsea has to play Champions League, and the quote part that everyone was focused on is that he said we will. And as much as I would love for that to mean that he's staying, I just think that it's his final mission to the club, to his teammates, and to us fans to get Chelsea into the Champions League. What a gent. So I honestly think that Hazard is just about to just, as if he hasn't done it all season, put the team on his back and carry us to the promised land sort of thing. I think, like I said, we're two points ahead I believe from Arsenal at this point, thanks to this weekend's result, two matches to go, four points. Just give me those four points. We have a one goal advantage. I think a win and a draw is very doable. Obviously, if Arsenal drops points again, then, hey, they did the job for us. But I'm at an 80% at this point. Even with Frankfurt all in between, I really do think that it, it is in our hands, and I really can't see Hazard just letting that go to go away yeah i gotta agree with you there i mean before we kind of wrap things up um do you have any final thoughts um we missed cho man i I really do think (laughs) it would have been really nice in that game yeah yeah. again william was just so tucked in and it's so frustrating to be watching a winger operating in the same space as a striker I, I hated the fact that I that Conte had to keep making a run to the sideline mm-hmm. for an open spot because it's just the, the progression from back to front would be so much easier if we exploit wide areas. Pass, move, pass, move. But instead, we get cornered because our wingers do that. And that doesn't happen when Cho stays wide. He's always this outlet option, whether it's the long pass or you work the, the passes through him. Him and Conte have this nice little give-and-go kind of connection moving the ball forward, but I just don't see that when he's not there. And and I really missed out. I think we missed out on him. I think that people were harsh about the Liverpool match. I thought that obviously a young kid is going to be a little nervous, but I think that it was a good first step. He wasn't trying to win the game on his own. So in my thought, we missed his width and his directness, and and I'm just bummed out about his injury. I, I really hope that everything goes well for him. I, I, I do have one final thought, um, and I got to admit, fair play to the United fans at the weekend um, after De Gea made his howler in the first half. A decent amount of Manchester United fans were actually clapping him off the pitch and, and, and singing his name. So I respect the shit out of that personally because I think Chelsea fans could definitely benefit from doing much of the same and the players as well. And it's disappointing when, you know, of course there's Twitter warriors at every club. There's shitty fans and great fans at every club, regardless of who you support. That's just how football works. But at the same time, I feel like we at Chelsea have been spoiled for so long and we don't really know how to appreciate what a player has given us when he's having a dip in form. Case in point, Dave, Marcus Alonso, William, this season, Jorginho. Even David Luiz to a certain extent. And look, I'm not going. I'm I'm not going out there and saying that, you know, fuck whoever's doing that. You guys are wrong. I'm guilty of it as well. And I just think it's something that 
Chelsea fans should keep in mind. Um, something that could benefit us, and it, it'll benefit the culture of our fan base because right now it seems that we're we're on everyone's shit list, and every we're, we're, we're kind of the, we are the laughing stock of the Premier League as a fan base. I mean, right behind Arsenal and Spurs, but that's not saying much, is it? Um, but yeah, I, I I do think we could benefit a lot from that, and I think we should take a page out of their book and get behind our boys in the final run-in because more than anything right now, when form goes and in football in general, when form goes, when there's injuries, when there's suspensions, bad weather, uh, whatever the circumstance may be, the one constant is the support. That's the one thing us fans can control. And I feel like if we emulate the kind of affection that Man United has shown to David Gea, who has been their best player in the last five or six years, I think we could benefit a lot from that. So, you know, let's not only clap Eden Hazard at a full-time whistle after a victory. Let's clap all the boys. Let's stay after the matches, even if we pick up a tough draw. We have to get behind them because they definitely feed off of it. Anyways, I'm ranting a little bit too much. Andres, I really appreciate you uh, taking the reins this podcast and hosting while, uh, you know, my voice is healing I guess well, not of course, so much man. anymore. And, but, uh, and we're not that, done just yet. You're, you're yeah. going to have to put in another cough drop because we've got part two coming where we'll take on the, the Twitter questions as well as a quick, well, not quick. We've learned our lesson. No more quick reviews when it comes to Europa League. We have our thorough Frankfurt semifinal review. So I'll let you finish the pot off, Zach. All right, everybody. Keep the blue flag flying high.